The health system here seems to be frightened. The nurses are saying we have no information, we have no education, we have no plan of action about how to combat this should it become a greater concern here, I guess. Um, so the medical community is speaking out about their lack of, of preparation and education, and it is a little scary. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, as part of my ongoing COVID-19 coverage, I'm going to look into what it's like to be a traveler during this time of pandemic. First off, I talked to the renowned travel blogger and book author Nomadic Matt, who was diagnosed with COVID-19 more than 10 days ago and is currently recovering from the virus at home in Austin, Texas. You might recall Matt from Happier Times back in episodes 67 and 68 last summer when he was talking about his travel memoir, 10 Years a Nomad. Today, Matt and I talk about what it's like to suffer from COVID-19, how he was diagnosed with the virus, and where he thinks he may have contracted it since he had recently traveled to places like Taiwan and Paris. That accounts for the first 10 or so minutes of this episode, then I widen the scope of travel in the pandemic age by sharing audio dispatches from seven different travelers who are either stuck overseas right now or have chosen to stay overseas due to a lack of better options. One dispatch comes from a digital nomad who flew to the Canary Islands from Istanbul to try and wait out the pandemic. Another is from an Italian traveler who is more or less stuck in Peru while his hometown in northern Italy is being ravaged by the virus. I have a dispatch from a woman who decided to stay in a small village in Kenya rather than return stateside, even though there are social factors that could make that more dangerous. I hear from an American guidebook writer in Japan who wonders if the pandemic is being downplayed there in advance of the Tokyo Olympics. I also hear from a blogger who left Hong Kong out of COVID fears earlier this year and now is on lockdown in Spain, where locals are having a hard time adapting to social distancing. I hear from a British couple who are staying put in their motorhome in Denmark, in part because they would be living in that motorhome back in the UK anyway. Finally, I have an audio dispatch from a young American based in Shanghai who works with people from Wuhan, that part of China where the virus originated, and has been dealing with COVID and its various social fallout since January. Again, I start this episode by talking to Matt Kepnes, aka Nomadic Matt. Let's listen in. Uh, I don't want to bury the lead, so you have COVID-19, is that correct? That's what they tell me. That's what the test came back. Yeah. So, so I just negative for positive for COVID nineteen. From what I've read, you have been traveling recently, uh, and so where had you been traveling before you came home and started to feel a little ill? I had been to Taiwan. Well, I've been to L.A., Hawaii, Taiwan, Paris, New York, and then back to Austin. And how long um, after you got back did you start to feel symptoms? 10 days after I got back to the States, um, and then maybe like four days after I got back to Austin. I mean, so given like the average incubation period, um, I probably got, it's probably either New York or Paris. <coughs> hope you don't mind me coughing on this thing. It will be harder to go a whole podcast without coughing. <laughs> this is a um, time where I probably won't edit out the coughs because the coughs underscore the fact of what you're going through right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, luckily, you're, I'm on day 10, so it's not as bad as it was a week ago. Um, so it's hard to say. You know, I I mean, God, the beginning of the month feels like so long ago, right? So, you know, I went away in February 
you know, early February. And then, you know, it wasn't even in the States. Well, no, they had one case. Um, but for the most part, it wasn't in the States. And then when I went to Taiwan, they were so strict about controls, temperature checks, hand sanitization, the whole works. Um, I doubt I really got it there. There were no, there were very few local cases at that point. Mm -hmm. So my guess is I, I probably got it in Paris, but none of my friends have tested positive for it or shown any symptoms. And that, and it's been over three weeks. So everybody I know I've been in contact with has tested negative. So my guess is I, I probably picked up from a stranger. In Paris, you think, or like in an airport or someplace? It's hard to say. Yeah. You know, I, ta- you know, I got really good in the habit in Taiwan of always washing my hands, always wiping everything down. You know, I had a meetup and people tried to shake my hands. And I'd be like, "Sorry, no, no, no handshaking, elbow bump only." Yeah. Um, wiping everything down, uh, but you know, I mean. We touch our face so many times a day unconsciously that, you know, I'd find myself slipping up like, oh, I just touched my face, you know. Uh, and so I, given that I don't know anybody else that has it and the friends of mine that have got tested have all been negative, nobody has shown symptoms. It was probably from a stranger. Were you, uh, were you washing your hands um, rigorously in Paris as well? <laughs> All the time. Okay. I I had lots of Purell because uh, I always stock up. Um, even before coronavirus, I my mom instilled in me always bulk buy. Plus, I'm lazy, so I'd rather go to the store once every like four months and once every like four weeks. Again, you know, I mean, they say that you know from what they know, it can be up to two weeks, but average onset is five to six days. So that would put me in. In New York at that time. Um, what was the arc between getting stateside, getting sick, and then wondering if it was COVID, and then trying to figure out if it was COVID? I I started to develop a small cough on Friday after I had gone out for a few nights. But on day two, that turned into a fever, and then I had a progressively worse cough. <coughs> and then a continued fever and a worse cough. So I found testing. It actually just opened. I got tested on a Sunday and it had just opened on Friday and they let me, it was private testing, uh, but they let me get tested. I think probably in part because of my recent travels to Taiwan and France. Mm-hmm. Though I, I don't think Taiwan is the issue. The timing doesn't even make sense anyway. Uh, and I tested positive. So I'm just in quarantine. And and how do you feel? Do you has it has it progressed in a worse way? Has it stabilized? Does it come and go? What what is the actual experience of being sick with this virus feel like? Um, I have been really lucky that I've only had a mild case. Uh, the fever broke on what would be one, two, three, four, day five. You know, I went, I peaked at one hundred one, one hundred one and a half, and then it was. You know, by day five, I was like 99 and I haven't had a fever since. Um, but the cough is the worst part. You know, it's it really feels like, you know, when you just have like a really bad chest cough, 
you know, you can feel like that sort of phlegmy, like deep, you know, chest, you know, where everything's just, you can just feel it all in your, in your lungs and such. Uh, that's what it's like. So right now it just feels like a really bad cold. I had a lot of aches and chills the first couple of days too. And then about day eight and nine, I also really felt uh, exhausted by six o'clock. I needed to go to bed. Um, but now I don't feel that bad. And have you been tempted to check yourself into a hospital or have you felt pretty stable? You know, they, they say the advice is that you should really avoid <coughs> ER type situations unless you feel like you're having difficulty breathing. Have you come to that point or are you, have you been comfortable in, in home quarantine? Um, I have not had come to that point. I mean, a lot, the problem with being in quarantine is you end up Googling everything. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's not a lot of information out there. Um, you know, basically, like, you know, if you get a cold or a flu, you know how the days are going to progress, right? They have enough case studies to show, like, day one will look like this, two, three, four, et cetera. With coronavirus, they don't sort of have that up yet. You know, there's, they're still kind of creating what is, what's it going to look like as you go through this process. And so... You end up, you know, reading about people who were fine and then suddenly day eight, they're being intubated and you're like, is that going to be me? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. So it creates a lot of anxiety. Uh, and then you think, is this anxiety, anxiety, or was it shortness of breath? Do I need to go to the hospital? Um, but it was mostly anxiety. How have you been spending your time? I have been reading a lot. Uh, I have finally caught up on lots of Netflix shows. Um, and I've been writing, I have a lot of stuff just, you know, to do after a month of traveling that I now have time to do. Uh, I've been spending way too much time on Twitter, mm. but you know, when you're, when you're locked inside, uh, you have a lot of time on your hands, a lot of time. You're known as Nomadic Matt, uh, with your very popular blog and also more recently with TravelCon, um, what's the status of TravelCon right now? Which is, <laughs> it was scheduled for May in New Orleans. Yeah, it was scheduled for um, May through 10th. It's now been pushed to September, September 18th to 20th. Like every other event in the April, May time frame, we've just had to push it to the fall. Most speakers have said they'll be able to return. I think everyone's just trying to scramble and make their, um, make their plans and, and refigure out their life. You know, I mean, it's a tough time in the travel industry, you know. Everyone is basically just ground to a halt and nobody knows how long it's going to last. And even when it, it, we are allowed to travel again, it will take months, years to recover. It just feels like a historical era, and even talking to you now, this will eventually become this historical moment in amber where we're speculating on things that will eventually happen one way or another, but there's no way we can know what will happen. Um, but keeping in mind that people are really freaked out about this, uh, about the health situation itself, and about how it will affect travel, you're in a unique situation as, as a big travel personality who actually also has the virus. What might you tell people? Keeping in mind that there's nothing as certain, what might you tell people um, about what's going on and how to feel about it right now? Yeah, it's these are very uncertain times. I mean, I wrote a, a newsletter on March 4th, 
where I told people, you know, we should listen to the experts uh, and you should avoid places, you know, that are hotspots, but, you know, they weren't recommending wholesale travel restrictions. And, you know, if, if you're planning a trip to Hawaii or Brazil, go, but, you know, skip Italy, you know, skip China and, and all those other hotspot places, but no reason to not go to like the Caribbean. And then just days later, I was like, I take that back. <laughs> and the WHO is, has changed their tune. And, and it just feels like you know, we went from we should all be con- cautious to we should all be inside. And, you know, I think that's really deeply unsettling to know that the world can change so quickly. All right. That was Nomadic Matt. More about him in the show notes, which includes links to his Twitter account, where he's been posting updates about his condition and his experience of having the virus. Now stay tuned to hear from a handful of travelers who've been dealing with the pandemic from different corners of the world, including Peru, Kenya, Tokyo, Spain, Denmark, and China. We start with an audio dispatch from Melissa in the Canary Islands. Here she is. My name is Melissa Whitmer. I am 42 years old, and right now I am in Gran Canaria, which is an island uh, off the coast of Morocco, uh, part of Spain. Before ending up here, I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and I was traveling around, uh, doing some ultimate frisbee clinics, and uh, just living my life as a digital nomad. COVID-19 changed all that. Uh, I had to make a quick decision about where I wanted to ride out a potential lockdown uh, and had to make that decision in an environment where I didn't currently have a permanent location and I was staying uh, in a a friend's apartment uh, that didn't even have an extra bedroom. Today is officially one week on this kind of lockdown. My days uh, are settling into a routine I think it's difficult to stay away from the news and from social media, especially in the first days of a lockdown. The surprising thing is that as a digital nomad, I uh, have years of experience working from home and in cafes. I thought I would be better at this. So that was surprising. It turns out um, it's hard to work from home uh, when uh, in times of crisis, no matter how much experience you have. I think... It's tempting to try to make projections about when this might be over, uh, the lockdown and the, uh, the virus pandemic, but I firmly believe that for mental health purposes, the right attitude of approach is to not try to do that, not try to put a date on it, but rather put in, ha- in place habits and behaviors that will sustain you for an indefinite amount of time, whether that's two weeks, two months, two years, I don't think that's going to be that long. But I think that that kind of uh, mentality is the is the thing that will um, be most useful. So that's the mentality that I've been adopting. It did not seem wise to go back to the U.S. Even for me personally, I have a tendency to catch colds, and uh, and I have. My parents are over the age of 70, so to go through multiple airports only to end up at their house uh, and spend a lockdown there did not seem like a wise choice. Uh, I'd say my only potential regrets, I know why I made the choices I did, and I did it for the safety of myself and for my parents. 
but I do not, I am not prepared for how I might feel uh, if something happens to them and, uh, and I cannot get to the U.S. From things that I'm seeing in Lombardy, heaven forbid we get to that situation, it seems like it wouldn't matter, not it wouldn't matter, but uh, it wouldn't be able to visit them in the hospital regardless. So I think in parting, all I'd say is uh, best of luck to you all as you all perhaps make hard choices of your own. And uh, good luck to all of you who are learning to work from home for the first time. My name is Marco Ferrarese. I am um, an Italian born uh, travel writer residing in Malaysia. And I am uh, 39 years old. And uh, at the moment, I am in Peru, in uh, the village of Cabana Conde near the Colca Canyon. I was uh, working on assignment for a guidebook for Fodor's Essential uh, Peru. And I was uh, researching the Southern uh, Andes and Titicaca Lake chapter. And uh, I'm originally from Italy, which is the epicenter of the COVID-19. And uh, when I left, we didn't know anything about this virus. So we just left uh, with the idea of uh, waiting for the assignment for fathers to happen and uh, traveling South America as much as we could. And uh, me and my wife, uh, Chanky Tiang, which is uh, my Malaysian wife and my photographer. Officials in Peru, they're telling me, stay home. That's all they tell me, stay inside. And we are allowed to go out and buy supplies we are allowed to just go out a bit and stretch our legs uh, in front of the door of our hostel. The problem is we are 3,280 meters of height at the moment, and it's getting colder, and uh, it's essentially getting the like the perfect condition for the virus to spread. So if some of the other 28 tourists that are here in other locations have it because they came from uh, Europe less than 15 days ago, this I don't know, the conditions here may be pretty ripe for a rapid spread. I believe that the Peruvian government is very scared and the, they're, trying to, they're trying to see if there are infected people, they're trying to locate them, they're trying to get them, they're trying to cure them, they're trying to isolate them. And um, I don't really know how long this will take. I have a Japanese friend uh, in Argentina who has been uh, subjected to several uh, uh, episodes of racism. Like people have asked him to pay double for accommodation because uh, he may have the coronavirus. And um, he was staying at a couch surfer accommodation in a scale and the neighbors have uh, reported him to the authorities, forcing him to get uh, into a quarantine. So people are getting very afraid of foreigners day by day. And um, in my situation, I'm just very scared uh, because it's getting cold uh, and I'm used to Malaysian weather, so very hot weather. If I get a cold or if I get a flu, they may think I have the virus and they may throw me somewhere. And uh, that will be the end of me, I guess. At last, uh, I don't really have any regret of, of, about being here because seeing my situation, I might just be here or I might just be back in Italy, locked up in, uh, in my parents' home 
and uh, not uh, not being able to do nothing and be very scared of what's happening down there where people are dying like flies day by day, my own people. And uh, the only thing that I'm thinking is that I'm probably very lucky to be here where at least I have uh, access to provisions and food. I just believe that whoever person uh, is still thinking that they will be able to travel soon uh, and uh, they are so selfish to think that this is just a disruption in the travel plans. I think they need to be very much aware that this is just going to be the beginning of something big that is going to strike and that is going to change the world as we know it. This is my opinion and uh, don't ask me why, you just have to read the news. Um, I, 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 I don't want to talk politics or geopolitics at the moment, but there are too many stars, uh, black stars uh, that are aligning at the moment. And uh, yeah, I'm scared, not just for myself, but for the whole human race. My name is Stephanie Johnson, and I am originally from Washington, D.C., and I am currently living in Cabernet, Kenya, which is in Baringo County, about a six-hour drive from Nairobi. I've been here for about two years working on a nonprofit project. I am on the uh, mailing list for the State Department's travel advisories and information from Kenya, from the um, embassy here. And just the other day, we got something saying, hey, if you can get out of the country, you should go. Uh, this is a warning for travelers. Well, I thought about it, and I think that my decision was to stay here. I'm not quite sure that that's the right decision, uh, but it's a decision that I made nonetheless. My consideration was, number one, I have to get from Cabernet to Nairobi, which is a six to seven hour trip on a Matatu and various other methods of, of public transportation. Then I have to go into the airport, get on a plane. There's not really a direct flight to DC, so I would have to connect somewhere else, which means being in another airport with more people and getting on another airplane to then go home to DC to another airport and the disaster that I heard about um, trying to get back into the country. And then the question is, where do I stay? I've been living here for two years, so I don't have a home in the States. While my family and friends are there, my parents are in their 70s, and my sister has two young children, and neither one of them sounds like a safe place to be if there's a possible level of contamination that I might be infected after having gone through that laborious journey. So I decided to stay put. Um, I live with cows and goats and chickens and all kinds of other things on a fenced compound. So my compound does have running water and plumbing and power, although all of those things are a bit relative. Sometimes we have power, sometimes we don't have power. Sometimes we have water, sometimes we don't have water. Um, Kenya has been experiencing uh, drought, 
We've also been experiencing locusts, which actually just came to my town two days ago and um, really just kind of ate their way across the town. Luckily, the the garden that we have at my nonprofit, which is a library, um, the garden was unscathed, so we still have a source of food uh, there, which is great. But food security is going to be an issue if this lasts much longer. I'm prepared to stay here up to another year if I need to. Uh, with information changing daily, it's there's no telling what's going to happen. Um, but the situation in the United States, as I see it through the news and through communication with my family and friends, is the health system is overwhelmed, right? We're trying to um, slow the spread of this virus globally, and everyone is being... Uh, challenged by the limits of the healthcare system. I don't know that my coming home is really going back into a safe situation. Um, then again, I'm not quite sure that the medical situation here in Kenya is much better. Now, they're saying that there's only seven confirmed cases and they've tested 124 people at this point. Well, if you test more people, you'll probably get more positives. The health system here seems to be frightened. The nurses are saying we have no information, we have no education, we have no plan of action about how to combat this should it become a, a greater concern here, I guess. Um, so the medical community is speaking out about their lack of, of preparation and education, and it is a little scary. Most people have two houses, where they live during the day and um, while they're working, and then their family home, which is in a, in a local village, which has probably been passed down for generations. And my town is like a ghost town now. Everyone has gone to their local villages, um, and they're kind of hunkering down there, watching the cows and the goats and tending to their... Um, their farms, their shambas. It's about planting season. So I'm sure that a lot of them are going to use this downtime, if you will, to kind of spend it uh, planting. But then there's a concern where if there is more of an infection, these people are just taking it to the villages and they are infecting more people there. Um, also, the concern is most of these villages and many of my neighbors and lots of people that I know are not practicing good hygiene. They don't have running water, so they're not able to wash their hands well, clean themselves, clean the areas around them. Um, when your home has a dirt floor and you don't have running water or plumbing, hygiene and cleanliness is an issue. So, um, so I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the people here. I'm concerned about my contact with the people here. Um, but I, I think all of it is just kind of a, a wait and see kind of moment. So my name is, my name is John DeHart, and I'm living in Tokyo. Uh, I'm, I'm in my late 30s and originally from the Midwestern U.S., Ohio to be exact, uh, Cincinnati more specifically. And uh, now I live in, in Tokyo where I work as a, a writer and editor. Um, so... Before the coronavirus hit, I was actually planning on doing quite a bit of travel this year. Uh, last year, I was extremely busy with a major project 
uh, working on a actually a Japan guidebook. And um, I was very happy to get it done late last year because it was such a mammoth undertaking. And so I was really looking forward to being able to to travel a lot this year and get out of the country. And lo and behold, this happened. So unfortunately, all my travel plans have been uh, indefinitely postponed right now. Uh, once the coronavirus hit, I was basically forced to choose whether to maybe go to the U.S. and ride out the storm uh, on, on the big island of Hawaii where my brother lives because he has a house there and I'm welcome to stay in it, he said, uh, or to stay put in, in Tokyo. And I've basically chosen to stay put in Tokyo because it's where my home is. It's where my life is right now. And uh, I'll likely be here until the situation improves. Um, I, do, I do go outside still, but I try to stay at home or close to home as much as possible. Uh, when I do go out, I tend to stay in my kind of greater neighborhood. I, I do go to a park near where I live and exercise and get some fresh air sometimes. And uh, I do some basic shopping. I go to certain restaurants that I know don't tend to get too crowded. But uh, I've, been, I've been definitely avoiding trains as much as I can. And uh, more, more uh, crowded parts of Tokyo like Shinjuku or Shibuya, you know, where the famous uh, pedestrian crossing is. Uh, I try to avoid those kinds of places just for the, you know, just to be on the safe side. And uh, I will say rush hour trains are still quite crowded here. So yeah, I think there's genuinely risk with getting on them. So Japan's government has been criticized for being a bit too blasé about coronavirus in general. Um, the, main, the, main, the main thing is official numbers, if they're to be believed, they suggest that Japan has been hit, you know, very lightly to date. But a lot of people think that the reality is that the government is just being lax on testing and artificially maybe even keeping the numbers relatively low so that it doesn't cast a, an overly dangerous image of Japan leading up to the Olympics, which by the looks of things right now will likely be postponed. The reality is, you know, on the street here in Japan, it really doesn't feel like a whole lot's changed relative to what's happening in a lot of parts of the world right now. So some people are chalking that up to the Japanese legendary use of masks during cold and flu season. I mean, I would say uh, probably more people than usual are wearing masks right now, but that's really not that out of the norm in Japan. Um, also, I think like people here just have a general sense of social responsibility, I guess you could say. It's, it's something that's been cited by a lot of studies as being one of the reasons that Japan has maybe seen a little bit less of the virus being spread. But I think it's, um, you know, it's not quite that simple. Again, I think maybe the virus is actually more widespread than we know. It's just maybe there's not enough testing being done. Um, but interestingly, this week, the cherry blossoms have bloomed across the country, or most of the country, including Tokyo. And from what I've seen, people are out and about, just as they are every year in parks, having picnics on crowded tarps and blankets with, uh, you know, alcohol, which is not really a good thing, um, lowering the immune system a bit. And, you know, the question is, could all of this physical proximity for Hanami, cherry blossom viewing, be a good thing or not right now? Uh, I think we'll probably have a good idea in the next few weeks, unfortunately, if it's not good we'll find out. But um, either way, right now, things are, are it's, it's, a, it's a very strange feeling in the sense that there's this uh, doom and gloom in the news. But on the other hand, you see people out, spring is in the air, everyone's happy to enjoy the, the, the cherry blossoms in the parks around Tokyo and around the country. And you don't necessarily feel like 
it's it's a serious time right now, actually. So on a personal level, you know, the the timing of this virus has really stung badly because I just finished a, a Japan guidebook for a U.S.-based publisher that that was released in late February. So my book came out literally as headlines were completely being dominated by the coronavirus and you know the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Yokohama. So talk about timing for a travel guide to be released, right? I'm Amber Hoffman, a food and travel writer from the U.S. My husband and I run a couple of websites, including the travel blog with husband in tow, food and drink destinations, and a recipe blog called The Bean Bites. I'm a resident of Spain, where I am on lockdown, and I've lived in Girona, just outside of Barcelona, with my husband for three years. When coronavirus broke out, my husband and I were in Hanoi during Chinese New Year, Tet. We planned to head to Hong Kong for 10 days uh, before heading to the U.S. to see family, and then had a plan to head back to Spain. While in Hanoi, we hastily canceled our trip to Hong Kong, regretted it, changed it again to the full 10 days, kind of going back and forth, always wondering if we were being uh, prudent or just overreacting to the news. In the end, we stayed for five nights and decided to cut our trip short. The U.S. airlines were starting to cancel flights, and the biggest concern was that we would get stuck in Hong Kong, which is not a cheap city to be stuck in. Hong Kong during the first week of February was interesting. Having been to the city many times, it was just eerily quiet. No traffic, no one on the street. We could get into restaurants easily that we normally would have to wait online for. But we wondered whether we should just be there in the first place. Each day, the hotel got more and more quiet. It was us, a few business and leisure travelers, and basically air crew. Each day, we had to have our temperature taken when we were returning to the hotel. One day, uh, a local asked us if we were travelers and essentially told us to go home. That's when we knew it wasn't a good idea to be there anymore. That's when the flights were being canceled. And so we called American Airlines and changed our ticket to fly out the following day. We had to get a temperature check just to enter Hong Kong airport. But after that, it was sort of business as usual. On arrival in Newark, we were shocked that there were no temperature checks, no screenings, no nothing. Just sort of the normal mass chaos of operations in the international terminal at Newark. During the second week in February, we went ahead with our normal plans to return to Spain. Our original goal was to give up our apartment in Girona and become nomadic once again. We were sort of itching to get out of our small town of 100,000 people, and we were counting down the days to leave. Then things started to happen in Italy, where we travel a lot, where we've written a lot about, and we have a lot of friends. That's when I knew it just wasn't the best time to give up a secure apartment in a country where we have a right to be, where we have good health care. Right now, we are officially on day seven or eight of the lockdown. Although we were socially distancing about a week before that, um, the Spanish government has done a pretty good job, but I still think there are too many people out on the street, seemingly for no reason. We're supposed to only have access to grocery stores and pharmacies, and everything else is closed. But there still seem to be just people out walking. And I'm most concerned about the grocery store workers. In the last couple of days, you need to wear plastic gloves to enter the grocery stores. 
The employees, though, are wearing handmade masks because of the shortage, and they're really on the front line of all of this. It doesn't necessarily make you feel secure when your grocery store worker is wearing essentially paper attached to um, rubber bands. But considering we work from home anyway, our day-to-day is pretty similar to before, except we don't go out for exercise like normal. I recently launched a recipe blog called The Bean Bites, which specializes in recipes for beans and lentils. I didn't realize how timely it would be with everyone looking at beans and lentils as pantry staples. We exercise at home each morning, try to eat healthy, I test a a recipe each day, and then we try not to go crazy in our small apartment. I don't see much change coming here in the coming weeks and months. Yesterday, the Spanish government announced a little bit of a more strict lockdown, but it's not entirely clear what that means. We're all looking to Italy and hoping to see a change for a better there. We're about seven to 10 days behind what's going on in Italy. I hope we can flatten the curve, but still think there needs to be more restrictions on the street. Even last night, I felt like there were some people in our very small apartment building who didn't live here that were just coming over for a dinner with friends, and that just sort of bothered me. Last week, grocery stores put a restriction in place so that you can't purchase more than six units of any one item, which is good. But here, everyone's sort of used to shopping day to day, and most people in our town don't have cars so that they're shopping with grocery carts. And I think that keeps people from hoarding and buying more than they need. In our neighborhood, at least, someone seems to be playing music from their balcony every night around 10 p.m. The Spanish don't seem to do well with silence and isolation. Around 8 p.m. each night, people go out into their balconies to applaud the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are working around the clock. It's their way to show support and to have a shared experience with one another. Hi, I'm Sam Jessup. I'm 36 and from the UK. And I'm Claire Jessup. I'm 31 and also from the UK. We are currently here in Denmark. Um, in in our motorhome, which is actually our full-time home. Yeah, we live in it uh, full-time. Um, we are in uh, th- uh, Thai. Not sure how you pronounce it. It's T-H-Y. <laughs> uh, in, in one of Denmark's national parks, uh, essentially um, off-grid and relatively isolated from the rest of the Danish population. Yep. Um we decided what what would be best for us. Um, would it would it be good to stay where we are, or would it be good to actually go and try and drive that 450, 500 miles back to the UK? Bear in mind at this point, um, all the EU borders that we'd have to cross have effectively been closed. Yeah, and then we'd also have to get across uh, across or under the uh, English Channel. Yeah, um, on either the ferry or the train. But it, yeah, it would mean crossing four countries and. We we thought it wasn't worth the risk of putting our, not only ourselves yeah. at risk, but other people. Yeah, and and, and uh, as we said, we live in our motorhome full time, so we actually don't have anywhere to go back to. We don't have a house to go back to. We'd have to go back to the United Kingdom and essentially do exactly what we're doing now. Yeah, we is... would we would take the responsible measure. We mm. would isolate for fourteen days, but that that's not. As easy when you live yeah. full time in your motorhome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feel it felt like, and it still feels like, much less of a risk to us and others to stay here in Denmark. Um, so here, um, 
literally everything is closed apart from, I think, hospitals obviously are open. Pharmacies. Uh, pharmacies, supermarkets, but uh, schools, college, universities are closed, airports are closed. Public transport is still running, but it's running on reduced. a bit of a reduced schedule. Yeah. Um, but from what we've seen, people are staying away from each other. They are practicing social distancing. When you go into the supermarket, for example, there are there are dots, um, sort of uh, vinyl dots on the floor that show you where to queue, so you're queuing the right two meters, apart. Two metres apart. And there's also, as you walk into, I mean, it's every supermarket we've been into, whether that be a small local shop or a bigger supermarket, yeah. there's hand sanitizer normally on a table as soon as you walk in the door. Yeah. And there's quite often the option of gloves. Yeah, and it's uh, everybody just seems to be in it together. It's much calmer here as well. We've uh, obviously we can only take from uh, the United Kingdom what we see uh, on the news or what we hear from family. And um, here in Denmark, there's been no panic buying. No, nope. um, everybody seems to be relatively cheerful and relatively uh, open to conversation, things yep. like that. We've but had... people are just keeping a sensible distance. Oh yeah, definitely from each other, definitely. not not overcrowding areas. Um, I mean. We've been off grid for about a week now. Um, we put a few shout outs to a few rural campsites up here in this sort of northern part of Denmark. And uh, we, we think we found somewhere we're going to be able to stay for the next week or so. Yeah. Um, the guys seem very welcoming there and they're, they're very pleased to, to let us stay for a bit. Um, obviously, we just continue to use our own facilities in the van. We have a toilet and shower and everything we need in here so we wouldn't have to go and... Um, no, no. Go and use any shared facilities. The only thing I'm going to need to be in search of is a laundry <laughs> yes, area. People don't think about, obviously, because we live in our van full time, we don't have laundry facilities um, and we need to find one that's not closed. I think a lot of the laundromats in, in Denmark are closed, are closed at, yeah. at the moment. So. Worst case scenario, I've got a bucket, <clears throat> I've got washing stuff. Done. Yeah, back to back to the old school. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we as a married couple we get on it we get along extremely well. So yeah. we have we've had no issues living in a small space together. No, bearing um, in mind we... the space we live in is six meters by <laughs> two and a half meters. Yeah, it's not so... a, it's not a big van. But um uh we are finding that we're missing interacting with just just people, just you know, going and Sitting in a in a restaurant and having dinner, or or even just you know we yeah just we might... having that noise of background chatter yeah 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 I guess um I mean in fairness we've we've kept ourselves relatively rural so we're not going to come across a lot of people I think one other thing that 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 Claire did in particular um was you joined a, a Facebook group didn't you yes yeah Facebook groups that is um, effectively it's British people who now live in Denmark mm-hmm. because I thought even if if it's a temporary measure. It, I've got contact with people that know the language yeah. and that can also possibly offer us some help. And, I mean, one of the members of the group has offered us a place to stay yeah. if we need to. Which he's, is lovely. I mean, he's we... got a spare room and he said if we ever, you know, we get too cold or things mm. become too difficult, we can go and stay with him. He's got a spare room with a shower and yeah, internet. Yeah, which is very generous. There is a lot of doom and gloom at this time at the moment with the whole COVID-19 unknown yeah but it's also it's allowing us to see the best of people yeah that's yeah yeah you know what that's that's very true that's very very true so there's a lot of doom and gloom and 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 and, yeah unfortunately unfortunately the media tend to focus on the doom and gloom because that sells that sells you know it's the media sells bad news bad news as they say before bad news sells doesn't it um but we're, we're we're looking out for positive stories and it is nice to have positive stories for people to share yeah just things little things yeah well like we when we when we said we were trying to find a campsite we we put out a shout to a few sites through facebook 
Um, and one of the guys came back to us and said, yeah, I, I can help you. It's not a problem. Come along whenever you want. It may be the Danish way, I don't know, but we are all in this together. Yes. So so the more we look out for each other, the 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 easier this whole uh, process becomes, oh, I guess. definitely, definitely. You've got to... You know, as a as a world, as a population, we have to look out for each other. Mm-hmm. If we look out for ourselves, this is not going to end well. Hi, uh, my name is Brooks. I'm 28 years old. I'm originally from a small town in Texas, but I've been living in Shanghai, China for the past several years. Um, I first became aware of the outbreak of what would come to be called COVID-19 in early January, um, in the weeks leading up to the Chinese New Year holiday. At that point, people here were referring to it as Wuhan Liogan, or the, the Wuhan flu. Wuhan isn't that far from Shanghai. I have co-workers from Wuhan, several of whom would be uh, visiting family there over the holiday. Uh, just like every year, my, my girlfriend and I went on vacation for like two weeks, this time to Vietnam. We got engaged there, finally, after being together for five years. Uh, we had a great time, but from you know reading the news and things, we knew that things were about to get really strange back at home. You have to understand that during our time in Vietnam, we were reading daily updates about the spread of the virus. Um, At that point, I think international media had started talking about it, so it wasn't just the domestic Chinese media anymore, which is, I mean, I hate to say this, but that's how I knew I needed to start taking it seriously. Um, I I remember the day when the death toll crossed 100, because it was January 28th, it was the same day I had proposed. Uh, The next day, we each received emails from our companies instituting work-from-home policies for the next two weeks uh, after the holiday ended. So arriving back in Shanghai in the first week of February, it was was clear that people were uh, worried. Um, Everyone was wearing masks, trying not to touch anything, sanitizing their hands. A lot of people were wearing gloves. Um, I've been in and out of Shanghai Pudong Airport dozens of times, but this was the first time that I've ever had to do a health screening. It, it, it took us an extra hour to get out this time. When we got back to our neighborhood, um, our Baoan, which is like a cross between a security guard and a hall monitor, was um, pretty pretty frantic about stopping us at the gate, which was closed, uh, which was weird because I didn't even know that that gate could close. I thought it was just decorative, um, asking us where, where we had been. He made us sign this declaration on a piece of paper with the same pen I assume that everyone else in the complex had used. Uh, saying that we hadn't been to Hubei province and that we weren't sick. The streets the, the streets were empty. Um, Shanghai is a lively, maybe even a little bit chaotic place most of the time, um, especially our area. Uh, we have a lot of bars and restaurants nearby, but there was no one outside. It was silent. It was eerie. Um, everything was closed, aside from a few grocery stores and um, convenience stores. It felt bizarre and dreamlike. Pretty soon, um, we were getting text messages from government agencies, which isn't actually that weird in China, uh, advising us to stay at home. If you did go outside, you needed to wear a mask, which uh, thankfully we already had a box of. Um, a lot of people struggled to get masks in, the, masks in those uh, first few days. After, after a day or two, I needed to get groceries. Uh, I'd have my temperature taken when we left the complex, and anytime I entered a store. Um, when I got back to the complex, I'd be questioned and my temperature would be taken again. Uh, a few days into the quarantine, I was woken up at maybe 7.30 in the morning uh, by police yelling in, into a megaphone outside in the uh, kind of the common area between all the houses, demanding that residents of two different houses come with them to the hospital. I think someone had, had tattled on them. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't see clearly from my balcony, but I, but I could see that there were several people in head-to-toe cover, um, wheeling a stretcher back out toward the gates. 
from the yelling, which was in, in Shanghainese, the local language, not Mandarin. So I couldn't really understand. It certainly seemed like whoever the, the person was that they had come for didn't want to go. Um, and I, I think that's the first time that I was really concerned. Uh, before that, it was all very hypothetical. But hearing someone being taken to the hospital in, let's say, less than voluntary circumstances was pretty surreal. So each weekend, we would get updates from our companies on the following week's working arrangements. It was always a week at a time, um, telling us to stay at home for one more week. And this went on for six weeks. Um, we stayed home and occasionally we went out to stock up on more food and we waited for the next updates. We watched a lot of movies. We read a lot. We cooked every meal, which is weird for us because China has a, a really good food delivery system under normal circumstances. Uh, typically, we would cook like once a week. But, you know, obviously that, that changed. Uh, COVID-19 is uh, continuing to affect me, um, even if things have started to get back to normal, actually, in Shanghai, because, of course, now it's spread to the U.S. Uh, I'm trying to apply for a visa for my fiancé so we can move back to the U.S. this year, which is what we had planned to do. Uh, normally, this process should take six to seven months, but now I have no idea. I've been advised to expect a lot of delays, which I understand, um, but it means we're kind of stuck here, right? Because I, I'm, I'm not going to leave her, and we can't go back together. So now I'm back to work, um, although my fiance is still working from home. Uh, we still have to wear masks everywhere. Uh, most restaurants, I think, have reopened, but people are rightly apprehensive to be out in public. Personally, I'm concerned that it's going to break out here again, but for the moment, I'm more worried about my family back in the U.S. And ironically, China might actually be one of the safest places to be right now. We'll see. Um... Now that it seems like my quarantine is over for the time being, I have to say, I kind of regret wasting those six weeks. I gained about 10 pounds uh, from stress eating and just sitting around all the time. Being stuck at home isn't so bad. Uh, I should have focused on that novel I've been meaning to write or gotten like really into bodyweight workouts. I don't know. Uh, anything would have been better than nothing. <laughs> so to anyone listening who is just now starting their quarantine, I know it's scary right now, but this might be the time you need for some personal project. Just please... Do better than I did, and remember to breathe. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including more about Nomadic Matt and everyone who sent in an audio dispatch, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Luke Van Tassel did the episode art. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.